And I invite you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians, to Ephesians chapter 3. Um, we are resuming our long lost sermon series in Ephesians, um, looking at Ephesians chapter 3. And so I know it's been a few months, and um, although, but I also know you've all been studying um, Ephesians uh, between then and now to be prepared for this moment. Uh, but uh, just in case you're new to the church, let me give you a quick recap of um, what we've already covered with, the, with Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. You know, Ephesians 1 and 2 contain very much wonderfully significant, crucial, lofty truth, but it's not merely lofty truth. There's also a lot of practical truth because of all of these indicatives that, that Paul reminds us of that are true about us in Christ and that are true about all we have in Christ, all that is ours in Christ. All of these indicatives have very real practical implications for the way we live our lives. And Paul has been reminding us of these things. He'll continue to do that as we move our way through Ephesians. For, for, for example, in, in chapter 1, Paul taught us how God the Father chose us in love before the foundation of the world for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ. And we learned that the God the Son took on flesh died on the cross so that we would have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Paul explained to us how God the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, sealed us to this inheritance in Christ when we heard the word of truth and we believed in Christ. And then chapter 1 concluded with Paul's prayer, a wonderful prayer, a prayer that, that we may know the hope to which he has called us that we may know the riches of our inheritance in the saints, and that we may know the immeasurably great power toward us in Christ, toward us in Christ, who right now is ruling and reigning at God the Father's right hand in heaven. And all of that was just Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians 2, Paul reminds us of the gospel. He reminds us that at one time we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, that we were all at one time enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And we learn that the salvation is a gift of God's grace through faith alone, not a result of our works so that no one may boast. In the second half of Ephesians 2, Paul explained how the Gentile Christians had been previously separated from Christ. Previously, they had been strangers to the, to the covenants of promise. Previously, they had no hope and they were without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, those who once were far away have now been brought near. Now been brought near to God and now been brought near to his people by the blood of Christ. And this was stunning. This was stunning news for Paul's original audience, and, and, it, and, and very few expected it. In fact, what Paul said was that Christ has made both Jew and Gentile one. That there is now one new humanity in place of the two. Now all who are in Christ, whether Jew or non-Jew, whether Jew or Gentile, all who are in Christ have access in one spirit 
to our one heavenly Father. That all who are in Christ, regardless of their background, regardless of who they were before Christ saved them by his grace, all who are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, are fellow citizens, are members of one household of God, are brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says that all who are in Christ are are joined together, growing into a holy temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in summary, in Ephesians 1 and 2, Paul has taught us who we are in Christ and all that is ours already in Christ. And now today we come to Ephesians 3. Now, I'll tell you something about Ephesians 3. So it's a wonderful chapter. It's part of God's word. God-breathed scripture. It's authoritative. It's sufficient for teaching us, correcting us, rebuking us, training us in righteousness so that we, the people of God, may be complete equipped for every good work. But I must confess that, um, you know, I... Even though I know that many of you know, many of you know Ephesians pretty well. When we started it back last fall, many of you were so excited. Richard, I love Ephesians. Many of you are familiar with Ephesians. But if I'm honest, my sense is that if there is a a forgotten chapter in Ephesians, it's Ephesians chapter 3. That many of us know about the the, the rich theology, that's the rich Trinitarian theology in Ephesians 1. Many of us know about the wonderful gospel that Paul describes for us, this gospel of God's grace in Ephesians 2. That many of us, maybe even who studied Ephesians before, know that in Ephesians 4, all of a sudden now Paul begins to, to turn, to transition from all of the indicatives in chapters 1, 2, and 3 to these imperatives, these practical commands, beginning in Ephesians 4. Many of us know Ephesians 5 is the marriage chapter, among other things. And then in Ephesians 6, we think about the, the armor of God. Many of our children have memorized you know, the Ephesians 6 list of the armor of God. But then there's Ephesians 3. And I think, for honest, we would say, Richard, I know it's, it's there. It comes after Ephesians 2 and before Ephesians 4. So I know, I know it's there. But, but in many ways, Ephesians 3 is, is a chapter that that you would rarely hear preached unless, unless your pastor is preaching all the way through the book of Ephesians. But guess what? You're in luck. That's exactly what we're doing. So we're going all the way through the book of Ephesians. So we're going to look today at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. 
So we're going to look at Ephesians 3, verses 1 to 6, under three headings. We'll see a prisoner of Christ, a steward of God's grace, and then a mystery revealed. Prisoner of Christ, a steward of God's grace, and a mystery revealed. And so first, a prisoner of Christ. Paul writes in verse 1, for this reason... Now, and for this reason is, is clearly con- is linking what Paul's about to say in Ephesians 3 to what he just finished saying in Ephesians 2. What he just finished saying at the end of Ephesians 2. And right, remember, he had just finished essentially saying, all who are in Christ, all who are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, Jew or non-Jew, everybody who is in Christ are all fellow citizens. Members of one household of God. All who are in Christ are joined together, growing up into a holy temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so with that in mind, Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now stop there and think about that middle phrase, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. There's some irony there. Do you see it? Paul was a prisoner. He was in a a prison writing this letter. But he's writing from a Roman prison cell. So the irony is that, that Paul doesn't say, I, Paul, a prisoner of Emperor Nero. Paul doesn't say, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Romans. He says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Okay, so so why does Paul put it that way? Why is Paul declaring to these Ephesian Christians that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus? Well, I think it's because Paul knows his original readers could be tempted to think wrongly about his imprisonment. You see, on the one hand, Paul's teaching his audience 2,000 years ago, and he's teaching us today, that he's in prison but not ultimately in prison because of Nero. He's not ultimately in prison because of the Romans, but he's there because of his faithfulness to Christ. Put another way, Paul's in prison for Christ's sake and for the advancement of the gospel among the Gentiles. Now we're going to revisit that a little bit later. We see, on the other hand, Paul is teaching his audience 2,000 years ago and us today that he's in prison because this is where Christ wants him to be. So Paul's declaring that even while he's in prison, that his life is directed and governed by the sovereign, good, gracious, wise, perfect will of his heavenly father. Even his time in the Roman prison. Even that. See, Paul essentially says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm here because this is where Jesus wants me to be for his glory. He's saying, don't think for a minute that my imprisonment is somehow a failure of God to care for me. Don't think that God's care for me ever wavers. That God's love and his sovereign purpose for my life never fails. That that God's plan for my life is not being interrupted by these physical chains, by these locks, by these guards. 
Then on the one hand, yes, I'm in this Roman prison, but I'm not really ultimately Nero's prisoner. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus, which means my life is always governed by the sovereign, good, gracious, wise, perfect will of my heavenly Father. Always, even in this prison cell. And I don't know which of you needs to hear this, but I suspect some of you do. The same is true, is always true for you, dear Christian. It's always true for you. That your life is directed and governed by your sovereign, good, gracious, loving, perfect heavenly Father. You know, do, do, you, do you know that? Or maybe perhaps you, you know it up here, but do you believe that? I mean, what if we believe that? How would that impact the way that we, that we face the various trials and the various, you know, the trials of various kinds that we inevitably face here in this life? It is true. It's true for you, dear Christians. See, what, what we read and what we often affirm um, here in this sanctuary with the affirmation of faith is the Heidelberg Catechism, question answer one. Remember what it asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation." Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. See, I think that that part of what Paul is saying in Ephesians 3 verse 1 is that he believes this. He knows this is the case, that he is ultimately not Nero's prisoner, but he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And the same is true for you, dear Christian. You see, I know that we can go through circumstances that seem impossible to make it through. Things we would never, ever, ever volunteer for. Things we would never, ever, ever sign up for. Circumstances, situations, relationships that we would never choose to experience. Things that seem almost impossible to endure and still actually believe that our lives are directed and governed by a sovereign, good, gracious, wise and perfectly, perfect heavenly father. But, but that is true. He is directing and governing our lives. See, remember, God's always doing a thousand different things in a thousand different people's lives in any given circumstance. You know, we might not be able to, um, to, to connect all of the dots and, and understand exactly what God is up to in, in the very details of our circumstances, but we do know what God is ultimately up to, don't we? We do know what God is ultimately doing. That his word assures us in many places that he always loves us and cares for us. And that he is directing and governing our lives as our sovereign Lord. We find this in many places, many precious promises in God's word. For example, like Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See, that's not some trite platitude. 
That's a precious promise of God for you, dear Christian. I mean, this past week, I was talking with a, with a dear friend of mine who had experienced a couple of hard days and received bad news in a couple of different areas of their life, kind of on back-to-back days. And we were talking, we were ending our phone call with prayer. And so I prayed through Romans 8, 28 for them. Why? Because we're, we need to know these promises. We need to cling to them. We need to remind ourselves of them, and we need to remind each other of them. That this person needed me to remind them of that promise. There are times where I need them to remind me of these promises. So in Ephesians 3, 1, Paul writes, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now think about that phrase, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now some people could, they could see, they see that Paul's in prison and they could say, Well, how can Christ be exalted at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning over all things, but Paul's stuck in prison? I mean, why would God allow Paul to be put in prison? And why did God leave him in there like this? But look at what Paul says. I, Paul, am a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. That's the purpose. That's why I'm here in this situation. On behalf of you Gentiles, as commentator S.M. Ball puts it, Paul may be in chains, but the gospel is not hindered, and Christ does indeed rule. Put another way, what Paul is saying is, I'm not really Nero's prisoner. I'm a prisoner of Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, and I'm here because of my preaching, because of preaching Christ. That's why I'm here. Okay, but why are you here? Why are you here hearing my letter read in this church in Ephesus? Why are you my brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, that's also because of my preaching. Therefore, it's worth it for me to suffer in this prison if the gospel is preached. He said, it's worth it for me, on behalf of you Gentiles, it's worth it for me to suffer in this prison as long as the gospel is preached, as long as Christ is glorified, as long as sinners are saved. So don't you think about that. Is is faithfulness to Christ worth it? Now I know faithfulness to Christ is worth it to all of us whenever there's blessing at the end of it. But if you're honest, Is faithfulness to Christ worth it if it means that we experience a cost? Is faithfulness to Christ worth it if we experience at some level loss, trial, persecution, or suffering? Now, we should never seek to offend anyone with our faith, never seek to to be a jerk or to offend anyone with the message of salvation in Christ. I mean, if if someone's mad at you, okay, or you suffer suffer because you've been a jerk, that's not persecution, okay? It's just called being a jerk, okay? So don't, don't be a jerk, okay? So we should never, ever try to do that. However, there will be times when faithfulness to Christ in the way we live our lives There will be times when faithfulness to Christ in the way we live our lives, there will be times whenever faithfulness to Christ causes us to refuse to just go along with the crowd. 
Whenever faithfulness to Christ calls us to, to, to schedule our calendars in a different way, to spend our money in a different way, to say different things, to have to speak up to family and friends and classmates, there may be times where faithfulness to Christ and doing all of these things will come at a cost. It may be a social cost that hurts in the moment or may even eventually be a loss of civic freedom. But what Paul says is it's worth it. What he says in Ephesians 3 verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. I mean, look at that verse. There's not one ounce of resentment in Paul's statement. Not one ounce of resentment. But I'll also notice the hyphen at the end of verse 1. The hyphen after um, Gentiles. And this, this hyphen appears to be the way the editors of our English translation are letting us know that, that Paul is essentially about to interrupt himself, okay? Now, I don't know if you ever do this or not, um, but in, in, if, you've, if you've never really had a long conversation with me, I'll tell you, I do this to myself all the time, okay? I interrupt myself, and now that Paul does it, you know, I feel like I'm in good company, okay? And so you guys feel free to do it to yourselves as well. But Paul is essentially interrupting himself, and what he has in verse two to verse 12 is a digression of sorts, before Paul's going to return to finish his thought, which begins with, for this reason. So he starts off for this reason, then there's this interruption. And however, Paul's digression, beginning in verse 2, is a wonderfully worthy reflection and explanation of his calling as an apostle. And a wonderful, worthy reflection and explanation about the revelation that he received from the Lord about the full inclusion of Gentiles into the people of God. And so if you look now at our second heading, a steward of God's grace, look at verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, that, that word translated stewardship refers to a chosen steward or a chosen servant who's been entrusted with his master's estate. This chosen steward, this chosen servant has been entrusted with the privilege, the responsibility, the care, and the oversight of his master's estate. And here, Paul is the steward. God the Father is the master. Paul's the steward or the servant, and he's been entrusted with God's grace that was given to him for the Ephesians, given to him for the Gentiles. And so I think there's at least three things I want us to see in verse 2. First, Paul is referring to the message of the gospel of God's grace in Christ. This message of the gospel of God's grace is that Christ has fully accomplished our redemption in his life, death, and resurrection. And it's important that we understand that, see, that the gospel is more than, it's not less than, but the gospel is more than your sins are forgiven. Now, it's wonderful that your sins are forgiven. It's wonderful that our sins are forgiven. But the gospel is more than the good news that Christ died on the cross for us. Praise God that he did. He died on the cross to die the death we deserve to die, to pay our sin debt in full, to wash away our sin with his blood, to remove our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Praise God that he did. 
But before Christ died the death we deserve to die on our behalf at the cross, Christ took on flesh and he dwelt among us and he lived a perfect, sinless, righteous life. And that life matters. Because when we trust in Christ, not only does his blood wash us clean, not only are our sins fully forgiven, and praise God, but praise God that when we trust in Christ, his righteous life is counted as ours, is credited to us, is imputed to us. That Christ washes us clean from our sins by his blood, but not only does he wash us clean, he then dresses us, he clothes us in his robes of righteousness. So the gospel is Christ took on flesh, dwelt among us, lived the perfect life for us, and died on the cross for us, and he rose from the grave on that first Easter morning. And that's wonderful good news, and it's so important because it means that there's resurrection life for us who trust in Christ. That not only does he wash us clean and clothe us in his righteousness, but he gives us new hearts. That we're born again. That we're new creations. That we're raised to newness of life, to walk in newness of life. So first, Paul is referring to that message of the gospel of God's grace in Christ. Second, notice that Paul's a man who has been given a message. God's grace was given to me. He was given a profound and glorious message. Paul, Paul's a steward. He's not an inventor. Paul's not free to come up with his own message. Paul's not free to even to, to take the, the true gospel message and then mess with it. Add a little bit here, take a little bit there. He's not free to be an inventor, to be creative, to be novel. He's a steward. He's a steward of the message of God's grace. And that what he is to do over and over and over again for the rest of his life is, is to do what the old hymn says, to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love, of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. But then third, Notice the message of the gospel of God's grace, of God's covenant grace. Notice it's meant to be shared. So look again. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for me. No, that's not what it says, right? That was given to me for you. That was given to me to be shared with you. Now, Paul's calling as an apostle is, is quite different from our individual callings, okay? I am not an apostle. You are not apostles, okay? If any of you think you're apostles, come see me after church and we'll talk about it, okay? But we're not apostles. Our calling is very different, quite different from Paul's calling as an apostle. However, dear Christians, if you're in Christ, I know you know that you're a recipient of God's grace, but I wonder if you know that you are to be a steward of God's grace for others. You are. We are. We are to, to share the message of God's grace with, with all who are in our sphere of influence, with our children, with our siblings, with our friends, with our coworkers, with our classmates, with all whom God brings into our sphere of influence. 
Now, we all have different callings and gifts. Callings and giftings. You know, my calling is probably not your calling. Your calling is probably not my calling. In fact, your calling is probably not the exact same as the person on your left and on your right. However, the point is that regardless of your gifts and your calling and your ministry interests and opportunities, we all have the gospel of God's grace to share with others as we serve in our various callings. And so I hope you realize what a blessing it is, not only to others, but also to you whenever you use your gifts and your opportunities to faithfully be a vessel of God's grace to others, that you'll be blessed and those you serve and minister are also blessed. And, and I know, I know that, that, that you, you are so busy. Your schedules are so packed that it's, it's so hard even for, for you to agree to serve in, in, in even what seems like a small way. But I hope that you'll never underestimate what that small act of serving for Christ's glory and for the good of others could possibly mean. I hope you'll never underestimate the many ways that God is using and he will use your faithfulness in others' lives. And often you can't see it right now, and you've got, but, but, but who, know, who knows what you're going to look back and see. What God did through what you felt like was a small sacrifice, a small act of service in the lives of others. Don't underestimate that. But then now we come to this third and final heading, a mystery revealed. Look with me at verse 3. Paul writes, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. So here Paul's elaborating on the stewardship of God's grace that was given to him for the Ephesians. And he uses that word mystery. And in fact, that word mystery shows up three times in the rest of this passage. Three times in verses 3 to 6, we find that word translated mystery. And Paul uses that same word mystery in many of his other letters. But that Greek word for mystery is different in a meaningful way from our English word mystery and how we normally use it. Right? Whenever we use mystery in our conversation, it usually refers to something that's like a puzzle, right? To something that's, that's unclear, obscure, dark, puzzling, a secret, Right? For us, often mysteries involve clues, clues that we have to piece together and figure out. Like if you know, you're playing you know, the board game Clue and you've got to figure out, okay, you know, who did it where and, and you know, Colonel Mustard in the kitchen with the rope or you know, whoever it was. But that type of mystery is not what Paul means. You see, there's a sense in which the word translated mystery in our text means secret. But this is an open secret and not a guarded secret. Right, look again at verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. You see, the mystery of God's grace for sinners in Christ is only a secret or a mystery because it could only be known by God's revelation. That we would never come up with the gospel on our own. Right? You, you would never just think it up. I know what's going to happen. You know, we're going to rebel against our creator. You know, and then you know what we should do? And then there should be this baby. Who's, who's not just ordinary baby, he's the eternal divine son of God, that he's going to be born in a manger, and, and he's going to grow up, he's going to do this. We would never think this up, that this has to be revealed to us by God's word, but praise God that he has, and that he has revealed it to us, that it was once hidden, but God has revealed it to all who will pick up and read his word. That the mystery of God's grace for sinners in Christ, it's a mystery, but it's an open secret 
It's an open secret. We want the whole world to know. And listen to what Paul says next in verses 4 and 5. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Okay, now we've got to think about these two verses. You see, you may be thinking, well, Richard, is, is Paul saying that the New Testament has a different message from the Old Testament? I see some heads shaking no. That's correct. The answer is no. Is, Richard, is Paul saying the Old Testament saints were saved by something other than the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men other generations? And the answer is no. There's only ever been one gospel. There's only ever been one Savior. There's a Savior who's yet to come. Now there's a Savior who came and who's coming again. There's never been salvation to anyone else other than Christ. And the whole Old Testament was pointing and directing us to the Christ, to the Savior who was to come. And this is what Jesus himself says very clearly about the Old Testament. What he says in Luke 24, verse 44, after his resurrection, whenever he's teaching his disciples, he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Whenever Christ says the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's his shorthand way of saying all of what we today call the Old Testament. And what Christ says is that all of the Old Testament is ultimately about me. That those prophecies, those promises, those pictures have always been pointing to me. From Genesis to Malachi, always pointing to me. You see, there's essential unity throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's all God's word. It was all given through the Spirit. It's all about Christ's redemptive work for his people and God's word has always been sufficient to point God's people to salvation in Christ, even when he was the Savior who was still yet to come, who was still yet to take on flesh and dwell among us and die on the cross and rise from the grave. Okay, so look back to Ephesians 3, verses 4 and 5. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So essentially what Paul's saying is, is that Abraham and Moses and David and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and the many others, they all proclaim the Messiah who is yet to come. But Paul's point is that from where he's writing in the history of redemption, the mystery of Christ has now been fully revealed. That shadow has given away to substance. Type has given way to anti-type. That promise has given way to fulfillment. That Paul says, when you read this, referring to his letter to the Ephesians, and referring more broadly even to what we today call the New Testament, which is the deposit of God's word, God's revelation handed down to us by the apostles as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul says, as you read your Bible, and as that same Holy Spirit who, in, who inspired the biblical authors, that same Holy Spirit illuminates God's word for you, 
you will see the mystery of Christ revealed. Like, don't miss that this is no mere book. This is the word of God. It's authoritative, it's sufficient. It's inspired by God. God's breathed out word. Listen to what Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, 19 and 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, friends, do we realize what we have in the Bible? Do you realize what a treasure it is? I mean, what if we realized what we had in the Bible? I worry that we take it for granted. That you know, um, I know it's been a long time, but, but when there's a, um, a coronation service for a new king or queen in England, the moderator of the Church of Scotland presents the new king or the new queen with a Bible. And this is what they say. The most precious thing this world affords the most precious thing that the world knows, God's living word. I mean, do you realize that's what you have in the Bible? And if, think about it, how would our lives change, how would our relationship to God's word change if we really believe that? What difference would that make in our own personal Bible reading? What difference would that make in our, our times of family devotion and family worship? How would that change you know, the way our Saturday nights go in preparation to come here on Sunday morning. We finally understood what a treasure God's word truly is. But then finally, last thing, Paul speaks out, uh, speaks out he spells out this mystery in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. But Paul says this mystery this open secret has now been fully made known. Now you may say, well, Richard, I'm familiar with my Old Testament and I know of many places in the Old Testament where God's heart for the nations, God's heart for the Gentiles is explicitly referenced and where there are these promises throughout the Old Testament. And you would be right. It's in lots of places. For example, in Genesis 12, verse 3, this promised Abram, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Or in Psalm 2, verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Or Isaiah 49, 6, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So that, that there are explicit references to God's heart for the nations, promises throughout the Old Testament. However, most of the Old Testament saints never imagined just how radical God's plan of redemption really was. Few were like Simeon. Simeon in Luke 2, who's holding the infant Christ. You remember what Simeon says? In Luke 2, verse 29 and following, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, 
a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. That that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 3.6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise, the one promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, this means that Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews, it means everyone who's in Christ, regardless of your background, regardless of who your mom and daddy are or were, regardless of who you're from, where you, who you are, where you're from, regardless of any of those things, that everyone who is in Christ is now incorporated into Christ and into his church on equal terms, without any distinction. All are fellow heirs, members of the same body, of the same family, partakers of the same promise in Christ through the gospel. And Paul keeps talking about this in Ephesians because this was a radical message in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. And I think, actually, it's still a very radical message for us today. And so let's end this sermon thinking about what this means for us in this room. What it means for, you know, for hundreds of people in this room. People who don't all look the same. I mean, there, there, there is diversity here. There's diversity in terms of ethnicity. There's diversity in terms of, of your heart language, language you grew up speaking. There's diversity in terms of your age and your generation, of your zip code and your income bracket and your education level. What this means for us, friends, is that racism, snobbery, partiality of any kind must never be tolerated in Christ's church. For it has no place here, and it's contrary to the very character of Christ. It's contrary to the very character of his body. As, as David Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, we are all equally sinners. We are all equally helpless. We have all come to one and the same Savior. We have the same salvation. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same Father. We even have the same trials. And finally, we are all marching and going together to the same eternal home. Right? This is a reminder that Christ will bring all of his people all of the way home, and that's all of the way home to the same eternal heavenly home. And the point that Paul's been making in Ephesians 1 and 2, and now into chapter 3, is that we've all been sealed with the same guaranteed possession of our heavenly inheritance in Christ that we are co-heirs and co-partakers of the same promise in Christ through the gospel. The mystery is now an open secret. And Christ is building his church all around the world. And that what Paul is writing about, this open secret in Ephesians 3, 6, is what the apostle Paul gets a glimpse of in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. So let me end with this. After this I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we've, 
We thank you for your word. We thank you that this mystery is now an open secret. That salvation is found in no other name under heaven. It's found in Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. And we thank you for this wonderful promise, this wonderful truth. That all of us, whether Jew or Gentile, regardless of our background, regardless of where we're from, who we are, that if we are in Christ, then we are indeed fellow heirs, members of the same body, brothers and sisters in Christ, through the same Spirit, with the same Heavenly Father, and that we are partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for this amazing grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.